0: Hello and welcome to the Point of Care Ultrasound Certification Academy podcast where we focus on POCUS. Here we will discuss all things related to point of care ultrasound, the practice, the trends, and its impact on healthcare. Our program will engage thought leaders who are defining global patient care with the stethoscope of the future. Hey, hey, what do you say? James Day here, recording live from Focus on Pocus Studios in sunny, or finally sunny, Media, Pennsylvania. Today, we have Fuad Al-Noor as our honored guest. Fuad has a master's in electronic engineering with nanotechnology from the University of Southampton. He worked at SAP in Silicon Valley as a software developer and then as a research assistant at Imperial College London. He joined Entrepreneur First, a London-based startup talent investor, where he met his co-founder, Sven Meskovich. Together, they started ThinkSono, an ultrasound AI company, which aims to allow non-specialists such as nursing staff, general practitioners, and emergency doctors to assess DVT patients at the point of care. Fuad has given a TEDx talk on how to build a medical technology company and is pushing the boundaries of ultrasound technology. Wow, I've been looking forward to this all day. Fuad, how are you? I'm glad. Yeah, me too. I'm
1: wonderful. I'm fantastic. How are you doing?
0: Well, how's everything across the pond over there in London?
1: Well, it's good. Today is sunny, so therefore, we're all happy here in the UK. You know, you can see people smiling. They're not grumpy anymore. They, you know, give way when you're walking. So it's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, I'd say it's lovely around here to this time of year. The so sun
0: has a way of making us all friendlier, no matter what latitude you're at. Uh, I, I I'm believe. telling
1: you, I I experienced that heavily when I was in California. I was like, "Why is everyone so goddamn happy in this country?" And I realised <laughs> no, it's because of the sun. And that makes sense. You know, yeah. there's just you know, so there's a saying, you know, in Europe, whenever we go to America, in particular in warmer places in America. Um, You know, I feel at home when I'm in New England, like Boston and stuff. I'm like, yes, I understand you guys. You guys are my people. And then I go to California. I'm like, you guys are too happy. You know, your life must be going really well. Like even people on the street, you know, poor people or people, you know, who don't have the means to like have housing. And particularly in San Francisco, that's a bit of a problem. They're still on average happier than, you know, a fairly well-off English person. So it's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, that is pretty cool. Now, we were talking about this. Uh, earlier before we went on the air. So you worked at SAP, S-A-P, which there's a facility here mm-hmm. in Newtown Square. And what is the mystery with SAP? What does it stand for in Silicon Valley?
1: Yeah, honestly, I have no idea. And most people, i say a lot of people in their company don't have any idea either. And yeah. the main reason is because the name changed a couple of times and it was German and I can't even remember exactly what it stood for so the company actually changed its name officially to just SAP like as in that's just the name they didn't it used to be an acronym for something but people got confused and it was so complicated that they just stuck with SAP instead so that's literally what it's called now just SAP without any meaning really but it's a great company I don't want to you know they're a great company I really enjoyed my time there so
0: yeah, no, that's good. At least we know it's not maple syrup or anything like that. So. No, that's true. <laughs> so I looked at your uh, TED Talk, which, by the way, mm-hmm. you know is online. And it's uh, if you guys want to look at it out there, it's what we learned from building a medical technology startup. Just put Fuad al in there and TED Talk, and you'll see it. It's awesome. These guys are involved with uh, doing artificial intelligence. Uh, Think Sano with an ultrasound company. Mm-hmm. And wow, uh artificial intelligence you know you listen to Elon Musk he hates it
1: uh, is,
0: yeah. Uh, is okay. yeah is ai overrated tell me
1: okay. okay yes okay all right so there's a joke in our company where we <laughs> use slack like most startups in the world and if you put, if you put ai as in just ai in any of the in the channels like when you write it just immediately there's a there's a message that comes to you that says you have to drink a shot <laughs> because it's we don't in our i don't actually like the word that much although we use it just for context So people know what we do it's like the easiest way to describe it mm-hmm. but it's i think you know and this is pretty controversial in, in some circles that i think it's not it's a little bit exaggerated although we're an ai company ourselves i think it's great for very very specific applications i think the idea that it will you know completely take people's jobs and stuff it's slightly overrated, Mm -hmm. at least in medicine. I think in medicine, that's the case. Maybe in other applications, like, you know, lots of people talk about taking jobs from people who drive trucks in the US. I know that that's a problem. And I can (laughs) sort of see that. I can see the technology maybe automating that stuff. I'm not sure, it's not my field. Um, I'm more into the medical side. But I think in the medical side, that would be ridiculous. I don't think we're at the stage where I can take people's jobs.
0: Well, they have a lot of that, you know. um, They have a lot of that. When I worked at Jefferson Medical College, they have, uh, you know, these uh, simulators, and they're actually, you know, like the the prostate, you know, and they use this Da Vinci, and a lot of it is uh, AI at this moment right now. I think, if I have that correct, um, I'm sure we'll get a call from a surgeon if I'm not correct. Yeah, But um, so, uh, so AI, can it be used in ultrasound?
1: Um, yes, only w- in 2016 when we started, uh, we had no clue um, because we thought maybe it's impossible. And then we, uh, Sven and I, my co-founder, we went up to uh, Imperial College London where I used to work and we emailed one of these, uh, one of a very, very good lecturer called Bernard, Dr. Bernard Klein. He's one of the sort of leading lecturers there in ultrasound, in, in particular in medical medical imaging for with deep learning, which is AI, uh, one version of AI. And we went up to him and we said, you know, it, we went to his office, sat down, showed a DBT ultrasound compression ultrasound video, and we said, is this possible to actually, you know, can we, can we in some way? Uh, do the same exam, allowing other people to do it, in other words, applying AI to this sort of problem. And he looked at us and he was like, maybe now, just now, because some papers had been published, um, maybe, you know, a couple of months before, which showed that this is a promising field, but no one was sure. And that was 2016. And I think um, now that we're in 2019, I think the answer is yes but you have to be really careful and have lots and lots of data and experience and expertise so it's just pushing on the edge of the technology so the answer is yes it can but you have to we're basically the first people that are pulling this off i that, think wow so it's yeah honestly yeah. there's not that many AI. You, you you'll notice this if you just google ultrasound ai yeah you won't see that many companies at all you know you have butterfly networks for example there's a couple but there, there's not many of them, and the reason is quite simple: that the images are a bit grainy, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. If they compare something obvious like X-ray, um, it's much clearer. If you want to look for, you know, changes in in bone or something, sure. the contrast is strong. But with ultrasound, it's a, it's a sort of uh, it's not just still images; it's moving, it's real time, uh, it's user dependent, and it's grainy. So there's all these additional problems, which makes it much more difficult. For a, never mind, like the the machine or the computer to to do assessments, but also a normal person, it's difficult. So you have to have some serious engineering expertise to be able to pull that off. So even for us, and we're very experienced in this, and even for us, it's a challenge. But that's why we're doing what we're doing. I think that's why it's fun. Um so the answer is yes but you have to have you have to be really careful and quite uh, experienced to be able to do it.
0: Yeah, you're right about the images. They're so subjective in um yeah. in ultrasound but as opposed to x-ray or the other imaging modalities. So I want to know and I know DVT is probably the number one uh, study done in most ERs and emergency departments yeah. but is Yeah. When you guys, how, is that why you chose DVT first? And number two is, no. are you doing two point or three point DVT? Do you know about?
1: Yeah, these? of course. Yeah. Okay. So we're doing three point. Uh-huh. Um, we're starting off with two as the most basic, you know, we want to cover, make sure we do that 100, you know, very, very properly. But we, we want to make sure that in, we're doing, we're going to be doing a study whereby it's three point. Um, but we don't do distal DVT. We we don't cover distal just because it's controversial about treatment and and whether or not you should even uh, diagnose distal DVT. But for proximal, we do three-point. But uh, to answer your question, what was your previous question right before that? You said about other... Uh,
0: Just why you chose uh, DVT as opposed Uh, to a lung exam or a cardiac exam right out of the gate.
1: Right. It's actually a great story because we didn't even start off with ultrasound. The first thing we did was we wanted to solve like a big problem. And in med in, med- in medical medical uh, like a big a relatively big medical problem which we have an edge what we call an edge so like something that I can offer because with my skill set and my co founder skill set it's fairly unique um, but you know so it has to be something we can actually solve practically. Um, and so we kept looking for different problems and then we spoke to lots of doctors and one of them mentioned DVT as a problem for us. And I have to be honest, I have zero clue about DVT. I didn't know what it was.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we, you know, we started doing some research and we found out, you know, your blood clots in the leg, that seems to be a serious problem. And we did some assessments and then, you know what we thought we didn't, we didn't really look at ultrasound even to diagnose it. We had a vague idea that that's how it's diagnosed, Mm -hmm. but because I'm slightly arrogant, I thought, you know what, let's use lasers. I have some of that in my background uh, from (laughs) university. And I said, you know, let's shine light on the leg, you know, and and in principle, you should be able to, you know, measure some sort of change in the light because of the absorption by the clot. And then that's how you detect it. And then we went, you know, with that for like six months or something. And then we met with lots of professors and we went to like uh, laser companies and tried to do it with lasers. And then we completely found out that it's nearly impossible to do it with lasers just because, you know, it, it, the absorption of light doesn't really make it work practically. Right. Uh, basically, the light doesn't get reflected back and stuff. So it, it, we almost gave up. But we still thought the problem was huge. So we thought, you know, we really want to solve a practical. Uh, a problem whereby if we solve it, it has huge beneficial outcomes for patients and hospitals and all appropriate stakeholders. And then we spoke to uh, Professor Goodacre, one uh, a very important professor in the UK who did a mm-hmm. whole paper on DVT technologies. Uh, and we asked him, you know, if we solve it, if we allow easy assessment and diagnosis of DVT, uh, would that be useful? And he said, yes, but I don't think this is remotely possible for you guys to do <laughs> at the time. Mm -hmm. but he he said to us to come back to him when we have something to show pretty much. So then uh, right before we gave up on the laser idea, we said, okay, let's reassess how it's done today. And that's when we started looking deeply into ultrasound. And then we thought, okay, right. So with software, it might be just about possible. And I had some image uh, processing experience from my thesis uh, at university. So, So I thought, okay, this is on the edge of our technical ability, but maybe it's possible. And that's when the story goes that we went to Imperial and we then, you know, gathered machine learning engineers and we gathered radiologists and hematologists and everyone. And we basically sat down and figured out a way to do it from a technical perspective with with machine learning.
0: That's awesome. If you guys could do the the deep venous thrombus and prevent pulmonary embolisms and stuff. And just one thing real quick, with that professor, just so we know, would you say ACOR or something? I just, people might want to know. Good ACOR,
1: yeah. Oh, good. Professor Acre. Goodacre. Okay. Yeah, he's in at Sheffield, and he wrote like this paper on the health economics of DVT, pretty mm-hmm. much. And it's fairly UK-centric, but it's an amazing paper. That's one of the papers that we used heavily because it was so thorough, and it showed all the different ways that you can possibly you know, you can diagnose DVT. You know, well score, D-dimer, serial uh, compression ultrasound, venography, all of them. Right. Mm -hmm. And which one has the highest accuracy, which combination produces the best outcomes and then take cost into account. So then based on that paper, we thought, okay, this is a very good overview. We can use that paper to to basically look at the clinical pathway because we're very practical. We're not just focused on tech. I think that's the most important thing for people to realize when Mm -hmm. it comes to. The clinical side of stuff considers you know accuracy of clinical technologies, how good is it, how great how good is it for patients. But when you're in a startup, what you really have to understand is how does this impact the clinical pathway, which is also obviously a clinical problem. But then you have to really look at the health economics, which I think is very neglected usually by startups, um, because the hospital side, at least in 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 Europe, um, doctors don't usually think too much about the economics of what a technology means. So they might say something like, oh, you know, what if you could solve X problem? And then but from a, a startup sort of business side, you look at the numbers, and they don't match up. Because although you might find a convenient way to do something, it might be much more expensive, let's say, than the way they're doing it now. And so you have to take these things in, into account. So with DBT, it happens to tick, in my view, all the boxes So high patient outcomes if if the technology works, but also cost-effective. Cost-effectively, it's very good because you can screen out something like 80 plus percent of patients going into radiology. You can avoid uh, use of prophylaxis when it's inappropriate in patients who don't actually have DVT just because you can't see them uh, at the time. You know, uh, if, if you can't see a DVT patient, they may have to go home because you simply can't scan them that day, and so they worry about PE. So therefore, they give them some anticoagulant before they come back to get scanned. So that's just an example. But there's lots of these things, you know, rural areas, all of these other problems that I'm sure you know in some ways better than me even. Um, so that's why Well, we got- you know,
0: I, what I wanted to tell you, I, I work for a medical device startup, and uh, they were trying to use low-frequency ultrasound to deliver, you know, meds through the skin— uh, mm-hmm. mostly focusing on insulin for that very reason but the problem the molecule's giant instead of going with a smaller molecule oh. but uh but so the so what i want to ask you is um with with that particular thing is so that you're just you're speaking about the challenges of medical technology a startup faces
1: yes yeah, so th- that's what i was Saying all, the, I, I suppose, because just depending on who's listening, sometimes uh, I think startups—if there are startups listening to this—it's a different problem to to do medical technology than necessarily other technologies. It it is it's not, you can't apply the same principles necessarily in this particular industry than other industries. So you have to be really careful about all of these things, even when speaking to clinicians like yourself. You have to you know consider all of these other factors that come into play. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's better than, uh, say, in, in this country, a, a for pharma pharmacology, because that's usually mm-hmm. a long, you know, phase four clinical trials. It's yeah. know, it costs millions. And you know, I don't think it's a, the average is about 10 or 12 years. But a medical device, I yep. think the average is five years. So that's another thing. Yes,
1: exactly. Yes. Uh, the approval process usually is long, um, but I think, and this comes back into AI. So one of the things that make, makes me a little bit skeptical is to say, and it's it's ironic, right? Because we're running an AI company, but it's just, I think people should take this into account is you need it to always be evidence-based. So you can't, like, here's an example. You can have a data set of whatever AI technology you want to pick. And then that data set is a bit biased. You know, it's, it's still going to be limited in some ways. Um, and therefore, how can you make sure that when your tech has your technology seen all these different types of cases, even cases that are fairly rare, but a, a specialist would catch, does your system, does your machine catch these cases as well? And that's a trickier problem than can be seen. This is why I don't think, for example, AI will replace all of, you know, radiology or all of these other medical professions. I think with very specific applications like DVT, it's hugely useful. Mm-hmm. I think for other applications, for example, it's not.
0: You know, I want to ask you, can you guys make, uh, you know, clone me and make a couple AI drones that could just bring me home paychecks <laughs> from like five jobs?
1: um i think that's slightly beyond our ability today but honestly man who knows i mean if you go back 200 300 years did we think the iphone would exist and have the sum of human knowledge in it no so i could say right now today no but who knows people like elon musk might be able to prove that yeah oh my god he's working on like a brain to to computer interfaces and stuff now Mm -hmm. he likes So so that humans can directly interact with computers without any sort of, like, with thought. And I thought that's a bit crazy. But, you know, wow. You see, I, don't, I mean, I wouldn't bet against him. I guess, usually.
0: Yeah, there's some brilliant minds out there in the, in the big, big blue marble here. So yeah. how can ultrasound be made more accessible? How about that one?
1: Right. Uh, so I think the fundamental barrier for ultrasound used to be cost. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that's going down, as you probably know really well, with point-of-care ultrasound leading the way in this. But I think the, the second sort of uh, big, big barrier is that healthcare professionals have to be specialised in particular in ultrasound, because it's so hard to interpret the images in most cases. Mm-hmm. And I think the only way for us to make it more accessible is to make technology or some way to allow other staff, like emergency doctors, uh, like nursing staff in, in certain cases, to be able to use this technology without necessarily having the entire sort of sonography training that would usually be expected of a a sonographer. And that's the only way I think we'll make it available. So for example, in the developed world where most people don't have access to imaging, that's fine, you can give them access to imaging, but they also don't have access to healthcare staff. So what are you gonna do about access to healthcare staff? That's an even bigger problem in some sense. So the only way you can do that is if you help them somehow with technology. So allow the technology itself to help them make assessments.
0: Wow, these are amazing times. And uh, yeah. it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. How's that?
1: Yes, indeed. That's a great quote, actually. There's your
0: English. <laughs> there's your English uh, for you.
1: Yeah, Shakespeare is a friend, yeah.
0: Yeah, Fuad Nor. thank you. Thank you very much. And you guys check him out on TED Talks. It's really, it's, it's really a great presentation, and we appreciate the audience for listening in. Don't forget, for even more Pocus Talk, follow us on Twitter at Pocus Academy and on Facebook at Pocus Cert Academy. Fuad, wow, it was an honor to have you here on our podcast.
1: It was a real pleasure. Thanks very much, James. I really appreciate it.
0: Yes, thank you. It was great. It's fascinating stuff, man. All right, thanks, dude. Have a
1: nice day. Bye.
0: We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Focus on Pocus. Be sure to tune in with us next week for more interviews with thought leaders that are on the forefront of global point-of-care ultrasound. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests and not those of Intelios. This podcast is for information purposes only.